welcome to Breeder Syndicate. All right, so uh, I wanted to welcome Not So Dog. Everybody, um, this is a very good friend of ours, uh, probably one of the oldest members of the Illuminati, and uh, a good friend. Um, he has an amazing history in cannabis, and I, I really think it's about time that be shared with the public. So for starters, let's talk about what got you into growing. Um, what got me into growing was pretty simple, really. Uh, I, it was two factors, mostly. I grew up in Chicago, and so when I got into smoking weed, there was really two kinds of cannabis you had access to. There was brown Mexican, which was about $20 an eighth, and there was green Mexican, which was about $30 an eighth. And anything else beyond that was incredibly hard to find and expensive. And so um, eventually um, I realized that in order for me to be able to uh, have a consistent supply, I had to start growing it even on a small scale. And when you first started growing, what were the strains that were around other than the green Mexican and that, were there any strains around that were floating that were popular to be grown at that time? So my, my story is a little different than most in the sense that like, I knew one person that grew weed, uh, in terms of what we called kind bud back then. So there was no, um, there was no like community. There was no access. There was no internet. Um, there, you know, obviously like you're growing in a police state where, uh, the laws are extremely strict, uh, and heavily enforced. And so I think about maybe three people even knew what I was doing. Um, and so I got this strain from Carbondale, Illinois, from an old deadhead friend of mine that was called the crystal chunk, uh, which I know nothing about other than the name. And, um, that was really what got me started in growing was just that one little strain. I mean, we would, the only places that we knew how to get good weed, uh, on occasion you would find it here and there, but it was basically either going to dead shows or, um, that was really the only consistent place that we knew Chicago was super dry and the, uh, the demand far outstripped the supply. So, um, I didn't really you know, I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to grow. My one friend that knew how to grow, he didn't even tell me that he grew until he was about to move to Colorado. And he gave me clones right before he left. And then I bought three books. I bought, um, Rob, Rob Clark's marijuana botany. Uh, and I bought, uh, Ed Rosenthal and Mel Frank's, uh, growing guide. And I bought Jorge Cervantes's guide to indoor. And I read those religiously because that was literally my only source of figuring out what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, marijuana botany has been a, a key book for a lot of older breeders and people very serious about this. That's pretty awesome that that was one of the first books you picked up and were able to read religiously. I mean, that could have gone a lot different had you been growing later and read like three pounds of light, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'd like to say that I had some discerning, like, you know, taste and, and I just literally bought all three of the books that were available in like the independent bookstore that were growing cannabis. And those were the three that existed. Um, and so I kind of just lucked out. There wasn't very many books. There wasn't very much information back then about how to grow weed. I mean, it was, 
1993, early 1994. So, I mean, you're talking pre-internet, uh, pre, pre anything really, there was really high times and, uh, these very few books. And high times was, uh, predominantly, uh, cocaine magazine going back and looking at stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, now being an experienced grower, like I would shudder to read a bunch of those articles and, uh, have anybody like take those as like gospel. But, um, you know, I was young and ignorant and had no idea. Oh, of course. And, and you know what, even, even though I wasn't around back in the eighties and early nineties, going back and revisiting some of those old magazines have been some of the biggest treasure troves to finding old, uh, lost, maybe not lost, but forgotten information that, that isn't currently in the, uh, isn't, isn't circling the interwebs. Yeah. I mean, even, even later on with like overgrown cannabis world and stuff like that, any cannabis source, in my opinion, does have a whole bunch of tidbits out there that are interesting, but you really have to have a pretty good base of knowledge to sort through what's crap and what's not. Um, and so really that's kind of actually what started my quest for knowledge is that, um, and who knows if I would have had a buddy that would have been like, here, here's how you set up six lights. This is everything you buy. This is how you run it. Here's some strains. This is what you do. Um, that wasn't available to me. So the only way that I could figure out what I was doing was by learning and searching and trying to find every bit of information I could to try to figure out how to, how to make it work. Okay. So we're going to jump over Mendo perps for this second. And the reason I want to do this is because I want to go over why you chose the name not so dog, but in order to do that, I think we have to, do you want to visit the, uh, the name first or the chem dog story first or Mendo perps really? I mean, it's your choice. I mean, that actually, yeah, that, that, that launches five years into the future from that point. I mean, I grew in Chicago from 94 to 98, and then I shifted out to Mendocino County, California. Um, and that's where all those stories that you just talked about start to pick up. Um, so, I mean, I don't know uh, which one you want to start with. Either one is fine. I mean, the Mendo Perps is probably the easier one to start with because it led to the other. Yeah, um, but let's do that. So I was, uh, I was living in, in, I had some friends of mine from dead tour and that's the reason that I ended up in Mendocino County was I had a landing spot in California. And so one of them was a glass blower, which at the time was, um, you know, really just starting to spread, uh, you know, there was a core of like Bob Snodgrass and a bunch of other people in Oregon, um, and you know, various hippies and people connected to the dead started to take up blowing glass pipes as, you know, sort of the new way to smoke. And, and, you know, it was kind of the end thing to have. And so, um, one of my friends, uh, learned how to do it and was, um, you know, but back then the tech was pretty poor, you know, uh, people were fuming gold and silver and stuff and heated glass and they'd stick a fan in their window and he bought this piece <laughs> Literally, yeah, it wasn't it, actually it's it's sad in the sense that some of the earliest guys, um, you know, they have lung damage and stuff like that from breathing in heavy metals and not having proper ventilation and, you know, air removal systems and stuff like that to stay healthy while they're working. Um, just like any other new thing. Like uh, uh, like b when we first started blowing BHO using a fucking uh, a water bottle, coffee filter and an open fucking blasting 
little pan, you know, in a, in a garage closed. Yeah. Or, you know, if you, if you were to blow BHO back then and you use PVC pipes and then you realize that if you stuck your finger on the inside of the PVC, it would be, end up being all rough inside and pockmarked, <laughs> you know, and then yeah. nobody had any idea about how purging or anything like that. Or, I mean, Fuck even back no. every, every era, I mean, even like in the, in the dab era that started, people used to like smoke off like cherry red bangers that were seven, 800 degrees. Oh yeah. Um, that obviously like once you learn that's carcinogenic and not good, but I mean, that's kind of like when you trailblaze on anything, you know, um, you know, you, everybody learns off the back of others that came before them and you, sure. you know, knowledge spreads and stuff. So. You know, in the 90s, obviously, before the Internet really exploded, uh, you know, knowledge was hard to come by. Um, it really was. And so, you know, like basically like the the ways that I got knowledge, I knew people on Dead Tour that grew weed and I would pick their brains. I would go to Amsterdam and I would and that's a whole nother movie that we could talk about. But I would try to pick their brains as much as possible and how to grow. And then Mendocino County. Uh, being the southern part of the Emerald Triangle, had a lot of old time growers and a lot. One of the few places in America that really had cannabis, deep cannabis history at that point. So um, by moving here, I learned a lot. And uh, so anyway, my buddy buys this piece of property and he wants to set up like he has some money and he wants to actually set up a, a healthy way to blow glass. And so we got this old guy who was in his fifties at the time, uh, sixties, right in that era. And, uh, he was a retired HVAC installer. So he knew all about how to set up the, you know, the, the ventilation and how to get like, you know, a constant 14 miles an hour of air blown sure. away from the, from the, you know, uh, from the torch and all this stuff. And he had cancer. And at the time, uh, the, um, the lady I was with, um, it was part of the reason why I moved out here actually is because she, we were battling, uh, she had cervical cancer and she was going through all this chemotherapy and all this stuff in Chicago and, uh, cannabis really helped her reduce her vomiting and all that. And she, it's, that's a whole long story, but, but basically they passed two fifteen in November of 2000 of 1996 um, and it came into effect in 1997 and then we moved out permanently in very early 1998. Um, and so I felt bad for this guy. He was battling cancer. Same thing as my, um, my girl was at the time he was kind of older, he was broke. Um, and so I gave him like a quarter pound of weed and some hash to help with his chemotherapy treatments and stuff, because it really had made a massive impact on like controlling the nausea for the treatments, um, for my girl at the time. So he didn't have any money. He was kind of embarrassed to take it, but I insisted, I mean, obviously weed was worth a lot more than, you know, this was before the green rush or before it was still essentially illegal, even though these laws had just passed, you know, yeah, um, and all that. And so he, you know, um, but I just gave it to him, you know, and I was like, look, man, I don't care. Like if it helps you, it helps you, you know, don't worry about it. I don't need any money. You don't have to feel guilty. Just take it. And so he kept us, he kept helping us set up this system. And then one of the visits, um, he brought me this little like empty pill bottle. And in that pill bottle, it had, um, a couple seeds. And he was like, you know, I used to grow quite a bit in the seventies and eighties before the helicopters came in hard. 
And he's like, I don't have any money or anything like that. I don't grow anymore, but maybe you could find something in these seeds that you'd like. I dug them out of my closet. So I didn't think very much of it. And I, I thanked him or whatever. And I grew them up. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, both of them popped. Right. And, um, you know, I got one male and one female. Uh, so I grew them up to about three feet tall and I was getting ready to take cuttings off of them. And I, back then it was like, you know, there was a lot of bedroom grows back then. Right. Sure. Um, and so I was, I was taking, uh, in this three bedroom house I had, I was going to convert, one of these bedrooms into a slightly larger veg and mom area. So I had a buddy help me build it out. And, um, we built this room out, got it all situated and we moved all the plants in there. And the next morning I go in there and he had missed a stud on one of the, one of the wood hooks and this old school, heavy metal light had fallen from the hook and swung down and it had chopped off the male of the base. I can only imagine the the horror as you walk in and see that. I mean, at the time, you know, yeah, it was like the, the light was hanging vertically and just shining against the wall, all super bright. And at the time I was super, I was stoked because it at least it killed the boy, you know, uh, not the girl, <laughs> um, and, you know? And so, I mean, I didn't even, you know, and, and then anyway, so I take cuttings off this thing and I flower it and of it, of, you know, it, if you've seen pictures of it, obviously the, the Mendo purple is a, is a Royal purple. It's got a crazy smell. That's pretty unique to cannabis. And so I had this weed of it, at, you know, a few months later and I flipped out because I'd never, ever seen anything like it. And we need to, to insert something here where we kind of explain to modern growers, even as recent as eight, seven or eight years ago, purples were still very not common to come across. It was still a, a, a trait people were trying to breed for. There wasn't a lot of true breeding purples. So to find something that was so black, so beautiful, so purple and bred true for those traits was something really unique. I mean, this is, this is even before, I mean, in 1990, this is years before at this point, any of the granddaddy purple, purple Urkel, um, you know, any, any of those ones that kind of came in like the early to mid two thousands wave, this is still four, five, six years before any of that even really began even remotely to spread out. Um, so, you know, I mean, literally like purple weed back then was like hearing stories of purple haze or something that you'd never seen, or there was, some, oh, sure. there was some Indicas, you know, um, in, in Mendo that if it got cold in the late season, they would turn purple, but that was cold induced, not natural, you know? And this thing turned, you know, uh, royal purple in a climate controlled mid 70s grow room. So it was pretty much a shocker, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it would have been. It was, it was really a shocker. And I was in my early 20s at the time, too. So, um, so I bring this weed to, uh, to, this, to this gentleman. And, you know, he, he totally thought he gave me different weed. Uh, he was like, Oh my God, I haven't seen that. He's like, I only grew that one year and I grew it in 1977 in Covalo up in the Hills. Uh, now people that aren't from Mendo might not know, but Covalo is basically a little Indian reservation in the middle of nowhere, really tucked away. It's a beautiful Valley, but it's super remote. Uh, in the late seventies, it was probably even more remote. Um, 
And so at the time that was 1998. So then I realized that the seeds that I had popped were 21 year old seeds and I was 22 at the time. That's you know? funny. So it was, it was, it was kind of a trip and in that regard. Um, and you know, like a lot of old timers, I mean, he, he, you know, that's what he remembered about it. And he only remembered the year because he only grew that strain one year. So basically he must've found a couple seeds and some buds threw them in a, in a, you know, a pill bottle and stuffed it in his closet and forgot about it for a few decades, you know? Uh, so it was literally like a time capsule, uh, to the late, yeah. seven, to the late seventies, you know? Um, and, to the, uh, actually to the early influx of the first Afghanis hitting the U S yeah, right in that, right in that same era, you know? Um, and so, you know, he, he passed away, uh, from his illness, which is a shame. Um, and so I never really, I was never really able to get much more information other than the year and the location that he grew it and, um, all that, you know? So obviously like after I, after I, uh, realized what it was, I was super bummed that I didn't have the mail, um, because at that time I would have crossed it to itself and to everything and had a whole line, you know, um, and all that type of stuff. But, um, be that as it may, I, uh, you know, I, um, I passed out the female to various good friends and things like that. And, uh, you know, she survived. And so what's interesting about her is that I think she's unique, uh, in terms of her terpene profile. Um, there's nothing else I've ever smelled that smells like her. And so it's just interesting in the sense of, you know, you go through different eras, just like now, you know, everyone's searching for skunk, um, which used to be a super common terpene in the eighties and nineties. And now is like a unicorn, um, whatever the Mendo perp smells like, however you'd like to describe it. It's not something that survived in other modern cannabis strains, um, so maybe it wasn't unique at the time, but it's certainly unique now. And, yeah. uh, and it does have, uh, according to Humboldt CSI, it's, he said that, you know, like, what is it? 10% show skunky terps. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I got, I, you know, he, he's done more positive work with it than anyone probably. And I've gotten to go up and look at, um, rooms full of, uh, S ones that he's done and, it certainly is a genetic that has a, a wide variety of, of stuff in there. <clears throat> we joke that like you could give a few hundred S1 seeds out and uh, various people could make their own unique lines completely based off what selections they picked. Um, you know, there's, there's black ones where the, the buds are all black and the leaves are black. There's burgundy ones. There's ones where the, it's very dark purple there's a wide variety. There's everything. There's every shade of purple from lavender to dark, dark black to almost a burgundy or a maroon. There's ones that have pine sole aromas. There's ones that have a bit of kush or a bit of skunk. Um, tall ones, short ones, um, decent amount of hermaphrodism in there at various points. So, you know, sometimes when you S1 stuff, it kind of is what it is. It's It's a fairly narrow gene pool, but she's got a pretty wide gene pool. And so that combined with the fact that she's fairly low THC leads me to believe that she's probably like an unworked 
um, initial land race from somewhere um, because most cannabis back then was between seven and 15% THC at best, you know? Sure. And uh, with the hermaphroditism that that's, and, and a lot of people don't know this or understand this, but in land races and even specifically Afghanis, when you run land race Afghanis, you're going to run into a lot of intersex traits. And, and that's the way land races work. They're unworked. Um, not all, but a good deal. And, and those early Afghanis tended to have that tendency. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing too, in the sense that like, I mean, hermaphrodism is obviously like a survival trait um, that, you know, allows seeds to be, you know, to be created in a different fashion. Sure. Um, And so for us, you know, since we had this big push towards seedless, it became one of those things where like it's always universally bad in people's opinions. Um, But there's a lot of phenomenal strains out there that end up being people's favorites that have hermaphrodism sort of locked into them for better or for worse. Train wreck. Classic example. Sour diesel. Exactly. Old super skunk for sure. Yeah. And so, and I actually think that sometimes, you know, and that's a, and that could be a discussion for a different point. We touched on it in the live that we did, but that, you know, I, I actually think that some terps and certain aspects of things might even be linked traits to hermaphrodism. And that by breeding away from some of that, Everybody assumes that it's guaranteed it's an individual trait that can be bred out with no harm to anything else. And sometimes that could be true, but also I think that could be untrue. And sometimes there's linked traits that you might really like that are tied into that hermaphrodism at times. Yeah, I didn't learn about linked traits until I was doing a lot of breeding hands-on. It wasn't something that I learned about early on. You don't read about it a lot in cannabis breeding talks, especially on forums and whatnot. But link traits are super important for people to learn about. It's a, it's, it, it basically, it's, it's a, consider it a Siamese twin type trait. Like you don't get one without the other and it passes on as such. Yeah. I mean, and, and so, you know, in a lot of regards, it's like hermaphrodism became a bad word because obviously like with the way that the finances work in cannabis, like getting a lightly seated room or a heavily seated room could be problematic You know, but I mean, there's also this thing where several of the most famous cannabis families of the last 20 years are essentially based on multiple instances of hermaphrodism, creating a series of things that led to some very famous stuff. Absolutely. Um, In that list, we have OG Kush, Sour Diesel, Chem Dog. What else do we got? Cookie. Cookies, exactly. I mean, a lot of these things were, you know, they were just... You know, I mean, people would get people would end up with some seeds that came out of their little personal or their little small scale indoor room, you know, that they would hustle to themselves and friends and they would save some bag seed. And then that bag seed later on could end up being some of the more famous strains in cannabis. You know, uh, sour diesel was born off accidental herming multiple, multiple aspects, multiple rooms at different times of accidental herms. That's right. Cookie was the same way. Um, there's other ones we could talk about. I mean, GG4 was multiple accidental herms. So it's really humbling as far as trying to breed where, you know, people put all this, you know, you can put all this intention and everything else into it and fail. And then some accidental stuff in a six lighter ends up changing the face of cannabis. 
Absolutely. Um, it, it should be humbling. And I think it's something people need to, to constantly be reminded of. And it's often overlooked. People try to add their own stories to history to make it seem more intentional. But in the long run, yeah, it's a lot of happy accidents. And I mean, you know, we, we, again, we mentioned this in the live, but like one of the reasons that the actual, you know, what people call the MSS or I call the super skunk, or maybe some people call the skunk six. One of the reasons I think why it became, um, you know, so hard to find or possibly lost was that, you know, she was, she hermed live pollen at times early and late. And she could seed a whole room for you, um, you know, at the drop of a hat, at the drop of stress or whatever. And so people get scared of that and they try to breed away from it or they eliminate a cut. You know, all it would take is one time, one room seeding heavily and you can't sell it for as much and you ditch the cut, you know, and you don't realize 15 years later that you'd be like searching heavily for that exact thing. Um, A lot of times people would eliminate really good strains because they had a tendency to rot or they had a tendency to herm or they had a tendency to do this. And there was other strains that they could get as much money for or sell just as easily that didn't have those risky bits. And so they would get, just get rid of it and not realize later on how important it might be. And now, you know, 20, 30 years later, we're sifting through a thousand fake MSS cuts. As fads happen, you know, I basically feel like the named clone thing and fads is was really detrimental to cannabis in the long term in the sense that like in the 90s, that was probably the golden era as far as diversity, because anything that, sure. was, good, anything that was good quality cannabis would sell easily, which meant that all these all these different things that people had all these various like family oriented strains that were up in Humboldt and Mendo that were grown every year, they were all viable. And every time a train wreck or a purple craze or a sour or a cush or a cookie or a Skittles or anything like that happened, literally dozens to hundreds of high quality cannabis strains would get shifted to the side um, because they weren't as easy to sell as what was currently easy. And most people only want to hold on to whatever is currently easy to move at the time. So like, I mean, to give a perfect example, in maybe 04, 05, 06, when the purple craze was raging, everyone, and I mean just about everyone up here, had purple Urkel, grape ape, granddaddy purple, um, all you know, Mendo perps, all these various things, because there was an endless, you know, demand uh, for, with brokers for as much purple as you could produce. They would take and they would go quick, and so that led to a whole bunch of stuff being shifted to the side that was really good. But you fast forward 15 years and how many people held on to those cultivars? People absolutely are hunting for original Urkel, original GDP, original this, because as soon as it went to sour and Kush and other things, 98% of the people that had it ditched it. Yeah. And weirdos like me and Caleb kept working purples because they're pretty. <laughs> Or you laugh at times when people are like, where's that 2010 era sour diesel? Oh, yeah. Which is pretty late to the sour diesel game. But for some people, it's like that was when they actually had access to a real cut. And then they lose the cut and they think they can get it back from someone else. And then they can't find that cut again. 
and 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 realistically, a lot of the times, specifically with sour diesel too, they'd be searching for a cut with the name sour diesel, and they would have already been they would have absolutely been growing a different cut not related to sour diesel, so they just won't find it again. Yeah, I mean, sour diesel. You know, we've talked about it a bunch. It happens to be one of the more confusing and extremely difficult uh, families to sort out what cut came when from who, where, I mean, even though we know multiple people that were originally involved and we've gotten the chance to interview them and pick their brains about stuff, there's still a decent amount of holes and unknowns. And, you know, the cuts don't, there's certain things where like, you know, the, the, the chain of, 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 you know, of who had it when is really well established and with sour, it's a lot more difficult. Sure is. I mean, yeah, that is pretty crazy that we've been able to talk to the people who first had their hands on the original seed that was popped and we still can't quite untangle the whole story. And it's not because they're lying. It's, it's not necessarily all of them. You know, some of them are really good dudes, but it's just a matter of, of different perspectives and memories. And with that specific one, I don't think that there, there was a, you know, obviously there was a seated room and it seems like even in the very beginning, there was at least two, possibly three sour cuttings like, you know, popped by different members of that crew. Exactly. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to my buddy, Fry Baby. Um, he's, he's the one recording this and helping us with uh, getting this done. So a huge shout out to him. He has some amazing F2s and open pollinations available. You can find him at Crybaby Organics on Instagram. So give him a shout. Yeah. So anyway, getting, getting back to, uh, what we were talking about a little bit ago, um, the Mendo perps, um, I, um, you know, when we were talking on our live and I was talking about the history of super skunk and, and, in regards to that specific cut and stuff, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, my buddy, you know, which I call, you know, from Staten Island or whatever, he lived in Sonoma County. And, um, I gave him a joint of purple of Mendo perps one day, um, not long after I'd found it and he fell in love with it. And he, um, he ended up giving me, um, what people now call the chem 91 and the super skunk, um, for that cut, sort of just an informal trade or whatever. And so that's kind of like the Mendo perps led me to the chems is base is the easiest way to describe it. And now that we're touching on that, let's uh, let's go ahead and do do the the entrance to the chems, how it all went down. Um, I know we talked about it on the live feed, but there's gonna be a lot of people who only listen to the podcast and aren't familiar with the live feed interviews. So go ahead and cover it all. I'll give the I'll give the the a relatively short version of the story because um, our buddy uh, Skunk VA has had a pot, uh, you know has has told the story at great length and stuff, but. The Cliff Notes version is that um, Skunk VA, being from Virginia, had some, you know, hippies and friends of his and mentors that were from that area. And uh, him and our our East Coast buddy used to go and see all the Jerry shows, the Jerry Garcia band shows at the Warfield basically every time he played. And so um, he, uh, our our Staten Island buddy had this strain called the Francine and the Francine was a old Indica, really flavorful, prone to rot. And 
some of these friends of skunk VAs from Virginia flew out and were absolutely in love with this Francine. And so they told uh, our buddy that if you bring us the Francine, we'll give you some skunk cuts that we really adore. Uh, and he, at that same time, had already made arrangements with Chemdog. Um, you know, Chemdog had the Chemdog, and he didn't want to pass it out to anyone because he didn't want to get cut off from his sources or his, you know, uh, he didn't want anybody to have it on the East Coast, basically. Sure. Um, but because dude had moved to Sonoma and lived on the other side of the country in California, he agreed to give it to him as long as he didn't share it with anybody back East. So, um, homie drove the Francine from California all the way out to Virginia and traded the Francine for the super skunk, uh, in 1993. And then he drove up to Massachusetts and met Chemdog. And he got, that's where he got the, what we call the dog. Other people call it the chem 91 or the chem dog. Um, he got that. Um, there was also the chem sis back then, but he didn't like that one very much. So he didn't end up taking it. Um, and he had some extras of the super skunk. And so he gifted one to chem dog before he drove back home. And then he drove back home and brought the super skunk and the chem dog out West. Um, and, uh, that's, and how it ended up in California. Um, that's how skunk VA and myself, um, and IC collective all got a hold of it, um, was through our buddy. And so that's the short version of how, um, so yeah, it was basically Jerry shows, uh, hippies liking weed, uh, some informal trading, and it just kind of ended up where it ended up on the West coast. And what year, you said it was 1993 when it ended up on the West Coast? It was 1993 when it ended up on the West Coast, yep. And uh, our buddy held on to it for a few years. Um, when Jerry died in 1995, I believe, um, Skunk VA, like a lot of people, stopped traveling and got a home, uh, wasn't on dead tour anymore, and that's when he started growing the Super Skunk. And he has obviously posted some old Polaroids on his page, um, which are amazing because it's, you know, visual evidence of that exact cut, um, you know, and, um, and then, and then he got, yeah, he got the super skunk and the chem dog in the mid nineties from our buddy. Um, and then a few years after that, I met, um, I met those guys and, uh, I traded, the Mendo perps, um, for those two cuts. And that was the start of me having them. Okay. And let's talk about how you got your name. <laughs> so that's a little bit more complicated. Um, so basically, um, our Staten Island friend, he was an early adopter of the don't pass things out. Uh, which is unusual because he he freely traded with me. But for the most part, he really didn't want things getting out. And he really didn't want the chem dog getting out. And so if you got it from him, you pretty much had to swear that you weren't going to pass it to anyone. Um, and so for a while, quite a while, actually, and this is like long before the internet or forums made it famous on any level, um, there was really only... To my knowledge, I think there was only about four people 
that really had it in California. Then there was him, uh, skunk, skunk VA, um, a guy whose handle is IC collective on Instagram and, uh, then myself. Um, and so there was really only like four grow rooms that really had it in it. And, uh, it was some of our favorite herb and, um, Staten Island and skunk VA lived in, uh, in Sonoma County. I lived one County North in Mendo and I see lived in Tahoe at the time. And so depending on who had the freshest herb, we would trade amongst each other all the time to make sure that we always had fresh, you know, fresh chem dog. And so, um, uh, Staten Island drove up to Tahoe, the Tahoe dog, uh, not to confuse people with the Tahoe OG, but like when the chem dog was grown in Tahoe, there really is something about mountain grown herb and the cold, cold temperatures that you can get up there. Um, I noticed this in Chicago growing in winter. If you can bring in five or 10 or 15 degree air into your grow room, it really makes the plant frost up. Um, like maybe, maybe it's a defensive mechanism. I don't know, but if you can bring in bone dry, bitter, cold air into your room, um, it definitely causes a reaction in the plant. And so I see grew some of the most visually, uh, appealing, uh, 91 that you could find. And so we would always get fresh batches from him whenever it came down and we would trade amongst each other. So Staten Island went up and he got a couple pounds off of him and drove it back home. And, uh, um, he met me and we were outside of this little town called Willits in, uh, in Mendo and it was in the dark and he want, I was going to get some of it. And so he's, he's like, man, he's like, I can't believe it. This stuff just it looks so different. I've never seen it look like this. It smells a little different. I don't know what happened. And so he hands me this Turkey bag and I open it up in the dark and I stick my nose in there and I'm like, it's not so dog. He's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, it's not so dog. And he's like, what is that? And I'm like, I don't think it's the dog. I don't think <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I'm not getting the nose that I would expect. He's like, what's well, gotta be. It's the only thing he has. And I'm like, I stuck my head in it again. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. And we got a flashlight out and we start, started looking at it and it then ended up, it wasn't. And it ended up, it was, a. Um, he had, uh, mislabeled, there'd been some mislabeled cuttings and he'd kept a mom and he'd filled a room full of cuttings of what he thought was the chem dog and ended up being this other cut. Um, and so, yeah. And then when I was, uh, when I was trying to, uh, join, uh, when friends of mine were convincing me that I needed to join Instagram and some other stuff and climb out from under my rock, um, I kept entering names into the thing and every single thing I could think of was taken, uh, which was got hella annoying. And so <laughs> I just popped that name in as a joke and lo and behold, it wasn't taken, you know? And so, uh, it, it was kind of like a, like an inside joke between us, um, because of, yeah, it was, uh, I'm not even sure what that strain was to be perfectly honest. Cause he only grew it one time before he got the dog back and got a properly labeled mom again. But yeah, that's kind of how the not so dog came to be. I absolutely love that story. Uh, well, can you tell us about super dog? Um, so that's a little, 
that's that's kind of involved. But um, basically, what it boils down to is that, um, like I said, Staten Island had the Super Skunk and the Chem Dog, and those were kind of our two favorite strains, uh, or some of them at least. And um, you know, uh, him and I were doing a bunch of breeding together. Um, hobbyist stuff. I mean, back then, like there was no intention of ever, uh, you know, selling anything like that, (laughs) whatever. That was way long before some of these, like most of these American seed companies got started. We were just trying to, um, breed. I'm kind of like the traditional way to breed, right? Like we were trying to take traits from two different things and combine them into one. And so, um, the super skunk had amazing terps, and it was lime green and it was frosty and it reeked and it grew tall. And the chem dog was kind of dark. It was kind of ugly, but it had incredible potency. <clears throat> and so we were trying to see if there was a way that uh, we could combine those traits in the same plant. And so he had actually started the project before I met him. Um, it's, it was like one of those things where you'd laugh at it now where everybody comes out with 20 strains a year, but this was literally like a, a four to six year project, um, that we would do here and there. Um, and so he had actually done, uh, the initial stages of it, um, on his own and he had taken a Hawaiian and crossed it to the super skunk. And then that was. I think it was, we brought, it was brought to F3, maybe selecting to the skunkiest traits we could find. And then that was, and then a male of that was hit to the dog, uh, chem 91. And, um, that got labeled super dog. Uh, and then we hunted through a bunch of those seeds, um, and found some keepers. Um, there's actually, there's a picture in the second can of Bible of some buds of it as well as a bunch of plants passed it out to a bunch of friends um and then you know we started doing this thing we did some line breeding with it we did some open pollination and we eventually did this huge open pollination um where we took like the seven best uh super super dog males that we found and we hybridized them to everything we had which would have been a whole host of stuff my maui cut Fact, the the chem 91 the super skunk the warlock the black domina the mendo perps i mean basically every nice cut we had access to we blew off a huge room of it um and uh and yeah it really was kind of the best of both worlds um in the sense that the super skunk for all of its legendary status or whatever it really only had moderate potency and the terps were volatile in the sense that it smelled like a dead skunk the last two or three weeks of bloom and maybe the first three or four weeks of post harvest. And then if you held on to it long enough, it honestly went a bit generic. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever those terpene, it kind of went to a little bit more generic green bud once those terps faded and the chem dog, they were actually perfect to grow together because the chem dog took a while to cure and didn't really reach its quality until about a month after you cut it down where the super skunk was at its best the first month you cut it down. Yeah. So pre- grew, pre- cure. Yeah. So if you grew the two together, you could smoke a shit ton of, uh, of super skunk, super fresh, and it would be amazing. 
And then by the time the super skunk was starting to lose a little bit of its luster, the the dog would be just exactly perfect. And once the dog hit that perfect point, it would stay good for months. And it's um, and so they were really nice to grow together. Uh, and so we were trying to get the terpene uh, and aromas and all that and some of the stretch. I mean, if you see those pictures that uh, Skunk VA has posted, it was stretchy where the oh, yeah where the chem dog was a little bit more Afghan, a little bit slower growing, not, not extreme Afghan. It had some stretch too, but not as much. <clears throat> and so we were trying to, we were trying to figure out a way, can we get the potency of the chem dog, you know, mixed in with the vigor and the nose and the taste of the skunk. And, uh, it was a hobbyist project in, in a sense we did it for us and our friends. And so, um, yeah, we just basically fucked around with breeding here and there in different rooms and different places over time, working on it, refining it, passing out various cultivars we found to friends and stuff like that. And that's kind of how it all got started. So my first interaction with Superdog was seeing it inside the can of Bible number two. Uh, and at that point, you know, I, at that point, Chem 4 was circulating, Chem D was barely circulating. Um, Chem 91 was almost not circulating at that time, but a few people had it, but Jeezel was in circulation. And, uh, I remember when Bodhi gave that to me, I thought, wow, this is supposed to be mass super skunk and Chem D. I, and, and I loved that cut, but I always thought, what would it be like with Chem 91? So when I saw the super dog inside that can of Bible, that became one of my white whales my white whales and it still is it still is one of my white whales because i still haven't found it um yeah but that's that was my first experience with the super dog seeing it looking for it i eventually uh i think it was a jeezel cross to the chem dog d dnl and i named that super dog 2010 now this is long before we were friends but it was just so funny um when we did meet each other and became friends to find out I was friends with the guy who created one of my white whales. Yeah. I mean, you know, the farther you go back in cannabis, it really is kind of a small community, you know, in that regard. And, um, you know, I used to joke that you're only like three hippies removed from anyone, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it, it really, yeah. I mean, back, you know, like it really, it really was like, um, you know, uh, it kind of now it's spread out and there's all kinds of people doing it all over the place. But, um, back then it was riskier. It was smaller. There was only so many people involved. Um, and you know, and on top of that, like even breeding, I mean, all the breeding that we did essentially was a labor of love. Like there was no profit margin in it. There was no American seed companies. There was no real way to market your seeds. Um, anything like that. I mean, if you were, if you were trying to, you know, start a seed company, you went to Amsterdam. Absolutely. And and tried to do it over there. So really it was like, um, all that breeding was done with intent to grow better weed for our friends and, uh, you know, and to have it, there wasn't any fame involved. There wasn't any money involved. And in fact, it was a money loser because obviously back then prices for herb were extremely high compared, you know? Uh, and so, blowing off even small rooms of seed, um, that you weren't even going to make any money off of. You were just going to hunt through yourself. Um, it was basically a labor of love. You know, there wasn't any, 
there wasn't any intent behind it except for to try to, you know, grow better weed uh, and be like this strain and this strain. Maybe we can combine them and we can get these traits to pop out in one strain combined, you know? I think a lot of that is missing. And this is just my opinion, but I think a lot of that is missing in today's market. Um, obviously, times have changed. You don't have to. I mean, you never had to, but the idea, yeah, was Americans went over to Amsterdam and they started their seed companies over there. Um, a lot of that has changed as seed prices have gone up. It's become a market in itself to sell seeds to where people are getting rich. You look at DNA, you look at, uh, you know, at Greenhouse, any of those companies that are mostly seeds. Um, and to this day, you still don't sell seeds. Um, so it's very admirable to me, admirable to me. But I still think you need to sell seeds. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like in a sense, like it wasn't so much that, um, that, you know, I just, it just wasn't even, it just wasn't even feasible back then. Really. It didn't seem like it was possible or. Yeah. American seed prices were what? 20 bucks a pack. If you knew someone, something like that, it was, it was a way different world. To be perfectly honest. uh, While I never thought that way, my buddy that we did the, that I did the project with, he, he saw what could be coming and he had this idea that, um, you know, if we made rooms full of seed that you could actually produce way more seed in that room than you could ever produce bud and that you could actually do really well with seed. And his intention uh, at some point was to flip it around and start selling some seed. But it was really like, it was really too early. People weren't into it. People didn't want it. We tried to move it to friends and things like that at the time. And, uh, you know, at that era, people just wanted dependable clones that would sell for high dollar. And they didn't, most people didn't want to do hunting. Um, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to put in the time. They just wanted to get a plant that was going to work for them and move it on. And so we did a bunch of this stuff and it was kind of like, I don't want to say it was ahead of its time, but you could just say that the market perhaps wasn't quite as receptive or ready and that there wasn't a distribution channel um, like the internet and stuff like that, that made it easy to do that. I was just doing it because I wanted to create um, better weed to smoke for myself and friends. Um, But my buddy from Staten Island, he actually kind of, he did see what was coming, although we were years away from actually making it work where he realized that like one day, um, you know, seeds could be extremely popular in in America, um, and that there'd be a demand for them and that, you know, off a six or an eight or a 10, 10 lighter, you could actually make way, way more seeds than you could ever make as far as, um, producing flour for sale or anything like that. Um, And, uh, but honestly, um, the world really wasn't ready at that particular moment. You know, they, uh, it was really the height of like certain clones fetch top dollar. And so the vast majority of your friends just wanted to run those clones because it was consistent. It was easy. Most people didn't want to hunt back then. Um, you know, and that type of thing. And so he, he was a little ahead of his time in that regard in terms of like what he saw coming. I never saw that as much. Um, but you know, um, you know, I just wanted to create different things that friends and I enjoyed to smoke. Uh, and so what that led to was that 
Um, you know, I, I've never sold beans or anything like that, but I've given a whole bunch of beans and strains I found from those beans away to close friends and various people and anybody that I thought had a good heart, uh, as far as, uh, you know, where they were at with herb and that, um, in retrospect, because I did that, uh, I went through some struggles, uh, and that you go through in cannabis at times. Um, and the only reason why some of this stuff exists today is because I passed it out because I personally ended up losing most of it, uh, through a series of unfortunate events. Acts Um, of God. Yeah. Acts of God, police, fires, various different things can occur where you end up, uh, you end up not having what you, you know, I mean, it's happened. It happened to all the guys in Amsterdam. Um, it happens, it happens, it happens all the time, you know? Uh, you know, people get in trouble, people get visited, things happen, fires happen, ex-girlfriends get angry at you and trash your stuff. Uh, all kinds of, there's all, there's all kinds of different stories about there, out there about how <laughs> famous things end up getting lost, you know? And part of the problem is, is that if you hoard things too tightly, then it really narrows, like, who has it. And, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, it can be lost permanently. Yeah, that's, that's always the big catch 22 in pickle. Um, how much do you really trust someone to give someone something that special? How well do you know them? Yeah. You know, but I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, back then, you know, we're talking late nineties, early two thousands, it really was a different era, um, in terms of all that, like nobody was, it was all still pretty underground. Nobody was trying to make a name for themselves. Nobody was trying to become famous off it. Like I said, if you were going to do that, you would end up moving to Amsterdam or something along those lines and trying to do it on the on the legal or semi-legal kick. Sure. Um, nobody was really advertising. It was all word of mouth and extended friend groups, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's uh, I had a we I had another friend uh, out here at the time and in the early two thousands, um, he had started to show some interest in breeding, um, and working some stuff. And he was, he was from up in Northern Humboldt and, um, hadn't really done that much before. And I was, I had done a bunch of it. And so, um, you know, we had other inch, we had, we had other shared interests that we had together. And so we were hanging out and he wanted to get started. And so I ended up giving him a, a few thousand seeds of various things that we had made, mostly super dog crosses and some clones to add to what he already had. Um, so he could get started and start playing around with stuff. And, uh, that guy ended up becoming relatively famous. Um, especially, um, after he sadly passed and his name's Mandelbrot. Um, but if you, anything, um, anything that he, you know, and I'm not, I'll just like pre, you know, preface this by saying that like, by no means what I'm about to say, am I claiming a bunch of, uh, Mandelbrot's like mantle or anything like that. But if you look at, um, <clears throat> anything that he did, if it has chem dog, super skunk, Maui, sour, uh, a few other things, um, that all came out of seeds that I gifted him. Yes. Uh, you know, is, is basically, I gave him a few thousand seeds to get started so he could hunt and play for things. And then, out of the uh out of the the Maui superdog, um he found that cut called the truth. Um, yes. 
you know, uh, he, you know, so, I mean, he changed some names and stuff. So if you see something that says Amherst super skunk, that's the same super skunk cut. Um, he spelled chem dog instead of D O G he spelled the D A W G. Um, you know, he took a little artistic license here and there on, on some of it. Um, but anything that you see that in his stuff that has that as a basis, um, that was all stuff that I gifted him, you know? Um, and then he took those things and bred with them and crossed them to things that he had, um, and made his whole, uh, Emerald triangle, um, Emerald mountain, I think was the first one that he had. Uh, he was doing a bunch of stuff up in Arcata. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, after he died, um, his brother, who's a very, super nice guy, um, has tried to continue it with Emerald mountain legacy. That's right. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, sadly when he died, um, it seems like, um, I don't know who they are, but a bunch of people seem to have raided his mom room and seeds and stuff like that. And so there was kind of a free for all on who got his stuff. Fucking typical. Of, yeah. It kind of got, it kind of got, you know, it kind of got a little dicey there or whatever, but you know, he left, um, you know, he left four kids behind who were pretty young. Uh, and, um, one of our, mutual friends obviously uh mean gene uh did a very successful auction uh to help out the kids and uh his brother came out to try to continue on what he had been doing and help support the family and stuff like that and so you know um you know uh but yeah so as far as as far as some of the super dog stuff um it ended up being you know, it ended up being the basis for a, a significant percentage of what Mandelbrot ended up breeding with and using, um, because I supplied not everything. Um, he had some of his own cuts and stuff like that, certainly, but I supplied a number of cuts and, and a bunch of seed to get him started on his breeding projects. And so a lot of what he did got based off that work that, uh, um, uh, myself and my buddy from, you know, from Staten Island did together, you know, and that's kind of like how things were a lot back then. I mean, anytime I'm talking about any kind of breeding project, whether I mention them or not, I almost, almost never back then were you doing something alone in your basement by yourself. You always had a buddy who was helping you or a partner, or you brought the strains and you ended up doing it at a friend's spare bedroom or, you know, I mean, there wasn't back then nobody cared about rep Nobody was trying to have ownership. We were all just trying to like breed on a certain level. Um, and so, you know, um, you know, most, most cannabis stuff occurs in groups, you know, and that, yeah. was that was certainly true with most of our stuff. Sometimes it might as well just be a helper. Sometimes it was a full partner. Sometimes it was someone that like, let us use a room or a spot on their hill for a project we wanted type of thing. Um, and so that's how most of that stuff went down. Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, um, you know, I, uh, you know, Mandelbrot got a little bit of a, uh, an ego, um, about various things and didn't really want to like, once he got a bunch of credit and a bunch of fame, he didn't really want to, um, you know, he didn't really want to return certain things that I'd given him after I'd lost them in various ways. And, that went on for a few years and we eventually patched it up and he was going to make right on everything and give me back certain things that I had lost that he still held. But sadly he, you know, 
he had a sudden and unexpected death. And so that never really came to fruition. Um, so, uh, through a series of unfortunate events, myself and, uh, my buddy and some others, we all lost the super dog plants and lines. Um, but, uh, they're not totally lost because tons of people have ran his work. Um, and so they exist in that form all over the place. Yeah. I still have this mystery cut here called the truth that may or may not be from him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, you know, um, so, I mean, that's, that's really like, I mean, to me, it's, it's like, that's, I mean, we've talked about it before, but I have like a few things in terms of what I think makes you a good breeder or not, you know, let's go. Well, I mean, I think for, for one thing, I think the most important part is that, you know, can your, can your breeding, can your breeding produce elites? And what I mean by elite, I mean, right now, you know, with Mark modern marketing and stuff like that coming into cannabis, uh, everybody has elites, everybody has rare, amazing, fantastic killer genetics. Right. But in the old, in the old days, what became an elite was like enough growers, enough heads smoked it and thought it was worthy enough to be something that was highly desirable. And that's how all the old elites became elites was that not everybody had to agree that it was the bomb, but enough people agreed that it was the bomb and it was desirable and that it had, whether it was its terpenes or its, its potency or its effect or its growth or, you know, some combination thereof. Um, you know, that's how, that's how all the name strains that we like to collect got named and got popular. Right. And so, you know, and so there's some people, out there you know and so like you know i don't even care if your lines produce a bunch of garbage to be honest as long as it's possible to produce elites out of your line you know because i mean let's face it like we're essentially trying to do we're essentially looking for lebron james yes right or a supermodel or you know something along those lines you're looking for a rare combination of traits right richard Uh, simmons exactly yeah, you know, and it, and it's like so obviously like in the in the line itself <clears throat> you're only going to find those superstars every once in a while. Otherwise they wouldn't be elite, you know, when people find, like say a keeper in every pack, you know, I mean that to me just means that like you could have a high floor but a low ceiling. Correct. Where you find something that's reasonably decent in most packs, <clears throat> but you don't find very much that's that's so I would prefer to have a low floor and a high ceiling. Where, I think that's what Tom Hill went for too, like with the haze and whatnot. Well, yeah, I mean the haze is especially so the haze. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, um, we've talked about this a bunch in private, but like, there's a reason why there's so many hazes that are thirty plus years old that are still carefully held onto. Sure, um, but even those guys that had access to tons of seed, they had to go through a ton to find what they wanted. You yeah, know, the metric of- ass ton. Yeah. I mean, and so, you know, it's, there's a bunch of, you know, I don't want to say the word garbage, but there's a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't pick for yourself because it's too much jungle weed uh, in in some of that stuff. And so, you know, I mean, there's certain seed companies out there that have sold literally millions of dollars in seed and I, and they don't have, nobody is trading cuts of theirs at all. Yeah, over, you know, 
decades of selling over decades. And it's not like every once in a while, people don't find nice things in there that they hold on to, but like, you know, so it's like if, if, if someone has gone through tons of your work and nothing has popped up, right. That ends up being that way. In my, in my opinion, that's kind of a failure. Yeah. And I don't, and, which is okay because it's like breeding is mostly failure. You it know? should be it, for, um, for someone with a discerning eye and uh, with enough experience, it should be mostly failures. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you just don't get what you want most of the time, you know? Um, so that's kind of the first thing is like, you know, like I don't, I, so for me, it's like, I don't really mind if you, you get junk or bunk. I mean, I used to go and I mean, we could talk about this at different, at different points, but I mean, I would make, you know, multiple trips a year to Amsterdam and buy a bunch of seed. Right. Yeah. And you know, there's things I bought from Neville or Sensi or whatever that I never found jack shit that was worth anything. Yep. But then there's other people <clears throat> that in that exact same line found highly desirable keepers that have been kept alive for a long ass time. Very true. You know, and one of the mistakes that I made back then was I would go over there and I would buy like, two packs of like 15 different things. Yeah. When, when older me would have been like, I'm going to go buy two or three things and I'm going to buy 50 or 80 seeds of each thing. And yeah, really exactly. Try to like, and really try to deep dive, but you go over there, you get all excited, you know, you're like, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this. I didn't really understand as well as I do now. Like, you know, it's much better to try to go through 30, 40, 50, 60 females than it would be to get eight. Sure. Because what are your chances of finding a supermodel or LeBron James and eight females? You know, exactly. and any any geneticist or breeder would laugh at you if you had that small of a selection pool. Yeah, I, I think most breeders outside of the cannabis community looking in, like breeders that are uh, in agriculture, tend to think what we do and, and how, generally speaking, as far as like uh, <laughs> seed companies and whatnot, they think it's silly that we would even consider F1s F1s nowadays. Yeah, but I mean, at the same point, when you're growing corn, like, you know, 50,000 corn starts aren't going to get you lifetime in federal prison. That's so, very, very true. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's like the Luther Burbank thing of pick, pick the best and ditch the rest. Yeah. Um, but when you have severe legal penalties in many states that are based specifically on numbers, you know, um, you know, genetics is a numbers game. Sure is. Right? And so, you know, and and all that. And so. Um, I actually think we've been able to do an amazing amount of positive work, um, uh, in the nineties and early two thousands based on garages and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, the second thing I would think is beyond the ability to throw elites is, um, do other breeders want to take your work and work with it? That's super, super important to me as, as a legacy type thing that that should be what we all strive for. Because really, eventually, everybody's going to be forgotten. Sure. Um, you know, one of the, the first podcasts you did, I wonder if you did a poll, how many people even knew who Seattle Greg was? You know? Oh, um, yeah. Not very many, really. But he is one of the most important founding people in cannabis in, in that regard. You know? Absolutely. Um, you know, so everybody gets forgotten, dude. You know? So it's really like... You know, the thing that won't get forgotten, even if they have no idea who you are, is that if you improve the cannabis gene pool, if you create plants and you create, you know, elites and stuff like that, that other people end up using and breeding with, then, you know, you made a lasting contribution. 
That's because, the legacy. Yeah. Because people might have no idea who he is, but they're growing NL polyhybrids. They might not even realize that there's NL in there, but they are, you know? And so he made a lasting contribution to the gene pool. Sure. You know, did. That exists for decades after he quit, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, being able to find elites in your stuff is one. Two is other people thinking highly enough of your work to want to use it in their own work and continue on with that stuff, you know? Yep. And three is kind of a silly one because it's all ego, but three is if people want to steal your work and rename it and claim it as their own, uh, then they really like it. Yeah, exactly. Cause now they want it to be a part of their legacy. <laughs> they, they would, they would like to steal your legacy and, you know, and make it their own and get the credit and get the fame and get the whatever from your stuff. So obviously if they're trying to do that, then whether or not they give you the credit or not, they secretly think quite highly of your work. Absolutely. And, you know, and so, I mean, I obviously like, you know, you were in, you were in music for, you know, for a while and stuff. And it's kind of like breeding is kind of like the music industry. Like there's lots of talent that never gets recognized. Sure. Um, There's lots of talent that never makes any money, you know? Um, so if your goal is like, is social recognition and money, um, most of the time you're going to be disappointed, you know, (laughs) in that regard. And there's lots of people that did a ton of good work, you know, and lasting impacts that, you know, were at the, you know, I mean, look at, you know, look at, look at all the, the eighties hip hop, none of those guys made any money, but fast forward 15 years and the next generation of hip hop, some of those guys are worth hundreds of millions of dollars now. You know, so it really is like what era you came up in, you know, uh, you know, Neville probably died pretty broke. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, right. Definitely I did. Mean, you know, he never really, he never really, uh, um, he never really benefited, uh, in that regard, in my opinion. Um, you know, no, most of his money went to legal fees. Yeah, you know, he never he didn't end up like Arjun from the greenhouse where he was worth millions of dollars and had stable this and investments or anything like that. Like he was enough of a pioneer that he actually spent chunks of time in jail and had the DEA trying to put him into prison for the rest of his life. And he got fucked over by business partners. And I mean, some of that, obviously, like, I mean, he had his own personal demons and struggles and stuff. But sure. um, But he also is one of the most important people in cannabis. But he didn't. You know, he got, he got notoriety and fame based on it, you know? Yeah. Um, but because America has this, this rename game where we give nicknames to weed based on cultural stuff, it kind of like a lot of, a lot of stuff that's Neville's, uh, people don't even know because, yeah. it gets, because it gets a name like electric boogaloo or it gets a name like, you know, dumpster or it gets a name like piff or it gets a name like you know absolutely you know and and some of those things you know it gets lost to time what they originally were you know and sometimes those strain names change again based on what crew they go to yeah and so that happens a few times and so you really have to have a good you know get some luck and some history and some digging to find out like what what things are you know and so all that kind of stuff gets lost to time. So for me, it really is like breeding is like what you can, what, what you, what you add to the gene pool, 
because then eventually other people are going to be smoking good weed that you had some small hand in creating or making better or adding that it gets out there, you know? I mean, yeah. because I, sh- uh, you know, in that same instance that, um, you know, I lost some of the, the, I lost my lo- my super dog lines. I lost the mother cutting of the Mendo P the Mendo perps for a number of years. Yep. Um, but because I shared it, I got it back, you know? And, um, you know, I, I did some breeding with it and some of those things are in some pretty famous things right now. And, um, but I mean, our mutual friend CSI, I don't think anybody has done more. Like he's the one that made sure that the Mendo P and its genetics are permanently in the gene pool. Yes, he's, he's bred with it so much and he's added it to so many different things. And so many people have bought his seed lines that, um, he's really the person that made it a permanent addition. You know, and he makes um, a perfect example of of the difference between, uh, you know, someone that's been doing it for a long time, does it right every time. I, not not to say he doesn't have failures, but he, he does what a real breeder should. Yet he's not one of these <clears throat> mega famous, you know, multi-billionaire, millionaire fucking Aryans. No, I mean, all right. You know, that's the thing about Aryan is that like he ended up in a perfect space in time. You know, he really um, did. There really, there really is something to that where it's like he got Shanti and Neville to form greenhouse with him, you know? Yeah. Um, and then they brought their genetics and their famous cuts and all that. And then, you know, he won, they won a bunch of cups back when like the high times coming out of what, what was winning cups was like a really big deal. Sure. You know, and so the amount of Americans and the amount of people that would go to Amsterdam and go to greenhouse and buy weed and smoke weed from greenhouse and then buy seeds made him extremely wealthy, you know, Um, but he was I mean, he he was the business side of it. And that and that's, you know, that's like a whole other interesting topic of like the and it's happening now in America where it's like um, in the 90s, it's really like. Uh, you can really learn a lot from watching what happened in um, in Amsterdam then where the breeders and the people with the passion for the plant and all that ended up melding with the money, you know? And, you know, uh, it wasn't always the happiest marriage, you know? Uh, I mean, obviously, like, you know, going, um, you know, uh, Neville had his seed bank, right? Yeah. If he doesn't get, if he doesn't get caught up in Operation Green Merchant and spend a year in jail, he probably never partners with Ben and Alan Dronkers from Sensi Seeds. Without a doubt. And he would have never sold his stock to Shanti. He never would have. He never, well, he never would have given his stock to, the, to Sensi. Yeah, exactly. He went, yeah. He, went, he went from owning the biggest, most successful seed bank in Holland to being the head breeder of somebody else's seed bank. Yep. And then Sensi ended up trademarking a bunch of the names or even changing a bunch of the names so they could trademark them. And so he ended up having to sell out to business people. Right. Yep. And then lost control of a bunch of his own genetics. And then when Shanti and him went to work with Arjun, because he learned from that. Right. They never let Arjun have any of the moms or the dads or the seeds or the herb or the cuts. Right. They would they would grow 
and they would provide the flour and they would provide the seeds to greenhouse. But they were very well aware that if they allowed, you know, if they allowed him to get a hold of it, that he could just cut them out. Yeah. And they probably knew his personality, too. (laughs) Well, because that's that's essentially what it what happened to, you know, since he seeds ended up owning most of Neville's work. Yep. From the seed bank. You know, and, you know, and so he didn't want that to happen again. And so, you know, there's always been this push between the people doing the real work and then those people don't tend to come from money. And then the people you have to bond with that actually come from money and that like that tension there. Sure. And, you know, there's people in cannabis that are in it for the plant and, you know, they want to make a living, obviously, and be comfortable Um, and, you know, and they have this desire and then there's people that are into monetizing it and their primary interest is monetization of what they have. And we deal with that all the time in America right now. I mean, there's a huge, there's a huge push to that, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and the one thing that holds true that I'm learning is that most of the guys that are in it for the monetization, one of their first moves is to get someone else to make their seats for them. Yeah. Or, or just, you know, they have a story of how they came across the elite stuff that made them famous, but it's not as good of a marketing story as they would prefer. Yeah, exactly. So they come up with these lies and this marketing story, or they just kind of make it up along the fly. And then you have various forum posts or various videos of them at different eras where it gets hard to keep track of what they said when, And there's a small percentage of us that are, you know, nerd out on that kind of stuff and able are able to piece together like what was really going on. But I mean, you know, there was a lot of years there where a bunch of people buying cookie thought that burner was hand watering their cookie. (laughs) Yeah, they sure did. I mean, they really did like, you know, and that's a testament to burners marketing capability and his ability to like, you know, push fame and push things. And, you know, I mean, they really like cookie was cookie was primed to be because it's so visually pretty, you know? Yeah, it It really was perfectly suited for the Instagram and the, and the, and that era. It really was. And they, and they, timing for it. And they did a really good job of marketing it and hyping it and, pushing it and you know they they stole names from girl scout cookies and you know thin mint and they (laughs) use but you know i mean that's the thing that's why that's why the the girl scout cookies push back is because marketing and brand name recognition people spend enormous sums oh right like developing that kind of stuff especially the girl scouts yeah you know and so I mean, they, you know, they, that's why they went from Girl Scout cookies just to cookies, right? Because they would have been sued into oblivion about it, right? You know, yeah. and, you know, but he, they took, you know, cannabis really wasn't ready for modern marketing techniques, you know? And so we were super susceptible to these kind of modern marketing techniques where, I mean, you know, yeah, obviously you and I, you know, you get into a bunch of trouble um, because, you poke holes in people's bullshit all the time publicly. Right. Yeah. And you know, you have your method of doing it. I, I, you know, I, I would choose a slightly different method, but, (laughs) but you have your method of doing it. But for them, you're attacking their money. That's exactly what it is. Like 
they don't give a flying fuck about the truth, right? They care about their image and how much money they're making. And so they view it as a direct assault on their pocketbook and their rep, which is super important to them. Yeah. So you're coming at it from a, from a history point of view. Right. And you know, they're coming at it from a, like, why are you messing with my game? It's just marketing, bro. Right. You know, and they're just trying to make it in the world and they're just trying to sell their stuff. And, you know, and, and it's like, you know, and, and they felt like the happy accident or, you know, how many people like claim, you know, uh, how many people over the years have claimed the origin of a strain just because they were the first one to like get out there and lay claim to it. Oh, sure. All the time, all the time. Right. And then you find out that they were just gifted it early on. And the other people that gifted it to them wanted to remain anonymous and they realized they didn't have to. And so then a ton of people end up associating that with them and they end up demanding percentages. If other seed breeders use their work or they sell the cut for high dollar or they do all these various different things. And really like they just got, they were just in the first handful of people that got it and decided to market it in that sense. That's how uh, Katsu's name got uh, attached to Bubba permanently. Someone gave him that cut. But he distributed it. His name's a part of it. Now he started a company. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to like, you know, necessarily like call out individual people, but obviously that's super common. Yeah, no, know? and it's nothing negative on him. It's just that's how people's names quickly get attached to something. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my buddy, our buddy, he never, he never attempted to do this. But literally because Skunk VA was the first person to get on the forums and start talking about the chem dog extensively, there's a bunch of people that call it the Skunk VA cut. Actually, in Canada, they just released a line, um, the Canadian Health whatever, called Skunk VA, and it's supposed to have chem dog in it. Oh, my gosh. And so he, he never he never played that game of trying to like lay claim. And, on you know, I mean, we've obviously with his with his interviews and stuff like that. Um, he's been extremely upfront and honest about how it all went down, but just because that was his handle on the forums and he was the one dropping information about it, it got a label associated with him. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, we all call amongst our crew, we all call it the dog. Yes. Right. But that leads to internet confusion, like nobody's business. So it's gotta be the skunk VA cut or it's gotta be the chem 91 or it's got to be the ChemDog 91. You know, it has to have a label that makes sense for people. And it, and it better not have A and W in the middle of dog. Yeah, you know, and then, you know, and so, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's the thing where it's like, he wasn't even, in, he wasn't even remotely trying to, but it still got associated with his name. Sure. You know, like just because people needed a way to talk about it. Right. Which cut? Oh, the one that Skunk the Skunk VA has. Yes. You know? And then other people took that, you know, took different cuts that they had and tried to actually like lay claim. You know, and then they never thought that information would come out later that would like put them in a bad light, but then eventually it does, and then they're like, oops. Yeah. You know? Oops. But they're not gonna like refund anybody's money or any of the bitching no. that they did when like they insisted that you had to give them X amount of percentage for the, the right to breed with their cut or to sell their cut or they just monetize. It.
Oh, from the dark, scary, slimy place. <laughs> Let's talk about L.A. Kush because it is so important to you. It's 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 uh, I would say your your family cut, right? It's one of them. Yeah. I mean, that 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 that's a good segue because um, the name is horrible. Um, <laughs> it really is, you know, yeah, it's, it's not a good name. It's, it's just in the sense that because of when I got it, right. Um, which was the very early two thousands, yeah. you know, um, you know, Kush hadn't, wasn't famous yet at all. Right. Yeah. Like there was, there was, I don't think the TK had even made it to California yet. No. Um, and the cut that, um, you know, Josh D and those guys brought um, was only with a couple of people. And so there was only a few rooms in Southern California that even had it, you know, um, shout out resin Lung. Yeah. Uh, and, and a couple others. And, uh, you know, and so like, you know, when you talk about Kush now, when I first got on the, when I first got on Instagram or different things, like everyone would laugh and be like, oh, bro, that's not Kush. You want me to show you what Kush is? Like there was no, and then the other name for it is Headband, right? Yeah. But Headband is, is almost as confusing of another name. Sure is. You know, and the history behind the various headbands and what got named Headband is right up there with Sour uh, as being uh, not poorly understood, you know, not well understood, not not very well sourced in terms of like, I mean, to take a step back for a minute, uh, just to use it as an example, we're really blessed in the sense that, you know, chem dog pops a seed. It becomes what we call the dog. He gives it to my buddy from Staten Island. Dude drives it out. He gives it to gunk VA and I see and myself. Right. And so there's yeah. a chain, there's a chain of hands where, you know, when it was popped by who, who gave it to who it never got lost. That's it. Right. And lots of stuff like this isn't very clear. Like we have no idea who first named headband headband. Yeah. No, too many people take claim for that. We don't know who the first headband cut was. Sure. Don't. We don't exactly know what the first headband cut that was named headband was even made up of. We don't even know if it had anything to do with diesel or cam. The first headband cut, you know? And so now, I mean, I will say the, you know, so we can segue into the L.A. Kush. So um, this is kind of a funny story is that um, when I gave all those clones and all those um, all, you know, I gave a series of clones and a few thousand seeds to Mandelbrot and he was just getting into growing and he had a few things. He had the train wreck and he had uh, a few different things and he had this sour diesel that was different than the sour diesel that I had. Right. Yeah. And so we traded, we were supposed to trade sour diesels. Okay. And so he's like, well, these, I, he only had like, literally, I think he had three or four cuts that he was holding on to at that point. And, um, he, um, so he's like, I'm going to give you a couple of these headbands and a couple of these sour diesel cuts. Right. Yeah. Um, and so he brings me four cuts and he's like, I forgot to label them but two of them are sour diesel and two of them are the headband. Right. Yeah. And so I get these cuts and I label them all carefully and I mom them up and I take clones off each one of them and I flower all of them, you know? 
And I can't tell them apart for anything, dude. Like, <laughs> not at all. It all looks the same to me. I'm bringing friends by my grow room. Nobody can tell them apart, you know? Yeah. And, and they all just look the same to me. I'm like, but only two of them are supposed to be sour and two of them are supposed to be headband. Right. And then yeah. my friends are like, this looks like sour to me. Now, granted, this is very early 2000s, right? Yeah. So sour wasn't even like very well known then either. Yeah. You know, it was just starting to make its way on the West Coast. I mean, sour was popped in what, 95, right? Yeah. And, you know, so this is, this is only, you know, five years after that or something, right? So not very long. And uh, it, it had just started to creep around. It wouldn't even really become famous for another five or six years, really. Yeah. At least on at least on the West Coast. On the West Coast, you know, sure. On the West Coast, sure. So, so I'm growing this thing. I'm bringing everybody by, and everyone like they're like, dude, it kind of looks like similar to your sour. It must be it. It must be his different sour, you know, because it kind of looks like yours. Yeah. Right. It's it's not exactly yours, but that's got to be it, you know. And so I I grow it a couple times, and I'm I'm calling it sour, right? Yeah. And then. Uh, at that point in time, um, Mandelbrot had, he had an open case against him, you know? Um, so that was part of the reason for his code name and he never drove himself anywhere. He always had a driver so that, um, if they got pulled over, he never had to give his license or, and, you know, his ID or anything like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was true. Like the first, I think the first 10 years I knew him, I never saw him like behind the wheel of a car. He always had to have a driver. Did he, uh, did he wear costumes to the grocery store? No, <laughs> he didn't. He didn't do anything like that. But it, it was like he he definitely, you know, everything had to be in somebody else's name. Sure. You know, um, because his name would, you know, he had some trouble in Montana. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, he didn't want to deal with that. And so he just kind of, you know, back then being a hippie and, and going in certain circles, you could kind of go offline and live a lifestyle and never have to pop up on the on the screen you know yeah yeah and certainly in the 90s and early 2000s before everything got computerized and everything else it was way easier to do that um so eventually like for six months or something after i got him i had this room full of what i thought was sour and he was rolling down from humboldt and i was like dude you didn't give me two different strains you gave me this one strain you never gave me what you were supposed to give me Right. Yeah. I'm like, cause I can't tell these things apart for anything. Like I kept all four original of your, of your cuts. You gave me, they're all moms. I have them all labeled different. I grow them all. It's all the same shit. Yeah. So he comes down and he walks in my room and he's like, this isn't sour. This is the headband. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, this is the headband. This is what we call the LA Kush. This is the headband. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not, he's like, I didn't give you my sour. You know, and he ended up liking the sour that I gave him better than the sour that he had. So he was like, I don't even want to give it to you because honestly, he's like, I'm using yours, not mine, you know, yeah. <clears throat> because yours is nicer. So he's like, you get, you definitely got the better of the two cuts that I gave you, you know, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, and so, yeah. And so then I was like, fuck, it's the it's it's headband, right? Yeah. He's like, I'm like, which headband? He's like, well, it gets called the LA Kush, but it's really a headband. Right. And already, you know, with the name changes. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it actually, like, you, he's written, he wrote some articles um, 
and stuff like that, where if you go and you look and he talks about like him breeding and he talks about breeding with the Maui super dog and breeding with other various cuts that I gave him. And every time he writes about the LA Kush in parentheses, he'll put headband or original headband. Yeah. You know, because that's what he got it at. But then in LA, they called it the LA Kush, which obviously within a few years became, you know, nonsensical because the Kush that became famous was significantly different, you know, but then it wasn't right. So, and that's actually, and you know, he did some breeding work with that headband cut and that's, that's what became the 707 headband is the mother of, uh, the mother of the 707 headband is that, is that, is that cut. And, you know, he actually passed it out freely uh, to various people at times, but it God was really, him. but it was really finicky. Um, and it didn't, it wasn't as, as consistent a producer as the sour diesel that I gave him was. And so most people dramatically preferred the sour, yeah. even though I liked the high better of the actual headband cut. Right. Yeah. And so this is, this is years, years before I mean, I don't think the Lumpa headband cut popped up on the scene until like 08 or 09, yeah, it was maybe. Much later. Yeah. Much, yeah. I mean, uh, CSI knows it for sure because he's got all the, uh, like, you know, like he does and as inspector style, he's got all the forum posts archived and stuff like that of when it actually came about. But yeah, even the other, even the other cut that got renamed headband that's a Kush, that one didn't even start to spread out until 06 or 07. Correct. You know, so this one preceded these things by, you know, five to nine years in a way. Um, yeah. So I think it might be the original headband cut. Uh, I don't know, you know, yeah, <clears throat> because just... we, we never even found out the human that named it headband or who cracked it or. But I will say that, um, you know, we were talking much earlier about, you know, for instance, CSI and you, you touched on like why, you know, why he's kind of the gold standard. And one of the things that he does is he grows out a ton of his own work, right? Yep. So when you grow out a ton of your own work, you obviously get to see what traits the various plants you have pass on to their progeny, which if you don't grow your own work, you don't get to see what's a consistent breeder. You don't get to see what, what, what it throws, how it behaves. You know, you're just taking two famous names, mashing them together and offering them to the public. Right. Yep. And so, you know, um, one of the things that the Superdog project did to me was it gave me a really, really good idea of what, uh, the super skunk and what the chem dog do. Right. Yeah. Especially crossed obviously, but like what they throw and all the various ranges of what they throw and that like, you know, and so, um, you know, I'm pretty convinced that, uh, that headband cut has 91 and super skunk in there. Interesting. Um, I, you know, how, you know, is it, you know, and, and, and we've talked about it, you know, like, I mean, one of the, one of the people involved in the, in the sour diesel story at the very beginning was Vondo, right? Yeah. Who we've gone to interview and, you know, he popped, you know, he, he popped some of those seeds after he moved to Southern California. Yep. I'm not saying that like the headband is that, but I'm just saying that, you know, um, somewhere it, you know, if you grow it and you grow the sour, it is in the diesel family. 
Yeah. I, I remember would, smoking I, it. I would bet almost any amount of money that how, how exactly it's in the diesel family, like what exactly it, it contains, but it's like, I've grown enough of that stuff out. Right. Sour yeah. and, and sour and 91 or, you know, super skunk and 91 hybrids and stuff that it's in there somehow. You yeah. Know? But I, in the, you know, 19 years or 18 years or whatever that I've had it, um, information has been super hard to come by, you know? Um, I like, you know, like we said, even with the sour thing and even getting a bunch of people that were there in the moment, um, finding out which cut is exactly, which is problematic. Very problematic. Yeah. And so, you know, it ended up being, it's like one of those things where it ended up being like one of my favorite cuts for effect, but it was pretty finicky grower and it could really freak out on you. And so it led to a lot of people getting rid of it until somehow me and maybe one or two other people ended up being the only people with it (laughs) is really kind of what happened. And it's like, and you know, strangely enough, um, before I even knew mean gene, um, mean gene got this sour cut from a mutual friend. Right. Yeah. And it was, it was my, it was the headband cut. And it makes sense if it was being passed to sour by Mandelbrot. Well, the other thing is too, is that, and, and this is, this is an admission, um, but there was an era where like a lot of people would come up to Humboldt and Mendo and they would act like a big dog, like they were a big broker sure. right? and they were in control and they had the money and they were the man. Right. But in reality, the actual man that gave them the money was like, go up to Mendo and buy these, buy one of these three strains. Yeah. So there would be times where it was like, I would have amazing chem D or I have amazing this or amazing that. And they'd smoke it and they'd be like, this is absolute fire. And then they'd admit to me that they didn't have permission to buy that. (laughs) Right. Like it would happen all the time. Like I, I, I need to buy these things. These are the things I'm looking for. I don't have permission, you know, like they wouldn't want to admit that. But when it came down to it, because finally I'd be like, dude, if you think this is some of the nicest weed you've seen in like eight months, why won't you snap it? Yeah. And they'd be like, well, the guy that I'm getting it for, he told me I can only get these two things. Right. So my whole crew started selling that headband cut as sour diesel. Yeah. And it became the sour diesel. So there was this thing where it was like all these people wouldn't have permission to buy headband. Right. Yeah. And nobody knew what the LA Kush was. Right. Yeah. But they could buy sour diesel all day. And so we called it sour diesel to people because that's what moved and they would absolutely love it. And then the person that they gave it to, they would be like, you, I want you to get as much of that sour diesel as you possibly can. <laughs> like, that's the one I want. Find yeah. that one. Right. And it was, it was this whole thing, right. Where it was like all of my crew <clears throat> knew it was headband, but the brokers only had permission to buy two or three things. Right. And it passed as sour. Yeah. Even though it was more like fuel and diesel than it was the traditional actual, like what I consider to be the sour nose. Yeah. Um, you know, mean Gene, um, he gets it uh, as sour. And that formed the basis of what he still has today called the root beer. Right. Yeah. And then he lost a cut and he kept getting back different sours. And none of them were the, none of them were the cut that he used to make the root beer. Right. Yeah. And then years later, 
I'm sitting next to him at a, and you know, we're, we're hanging out together and I pass him a jar and I was like, tell me what you think of this. And he opens it up and he's like, holy shit, that's the sour. That's the sour. I, that's the sour I use to make the root beer, you know? Yeah. Um, and so for us, it was like, we never like renamed it intention. Like, you know what I mean? Like at first, yeah. at first it was renamed because like it didn't come with a label and everybody assumed it would look so close to diesel that it had to be diesel. You yeah. know, it wasn't whatever headband it was supposed to be. It had to be diesel. So we called it diesel for a bit. And then Mandelbach cleared it up that it was actual headband. And then brokers still wanted it as sour, you know? <laughs> so it ended up getting called, you know, I mean, the, the labels never changed, you know? Yeah. Uh, like in our own personal gardens or anything like that, those always stayed the same, but you know, um, you know, and we always called it, but you know, for a bunch of my friends, it's like they got, you know, that's it. It ended up being like the sour diesel cut that they ran for years, you know, during that whole hype phase or whatever, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, so and yeah, and, and it's like it, it ended up getting dropped by most people um, and lost and renamed and different things. And so then it ended up where only a couple people have it. Um, and uh, it's still like in terms of potency, um, it's, it's way, way, way up there uh, in terms of effect. And it's still, yeah. one, of my, it's still one of my all-time favorites. Um, but it's probably like the biggest issue I faced it's like when I would try to describe it, like I said, is that if I called it headband, everybody had familiarity with some other headband. Yeah. And they believe that whatever headband they had the familiarity with was the real headband, the real only and the original. Yeah. And then if I called it LA Kush, then I get a bunch of people laughing at me that I was an ignoramus and that I didn't know what real (laughs) Kush was. And they'd show me what real Kush was, you know, yeah, which of course I knew what it was, but those so then those were like the only two names, you know, and yeah. and all that, you know, and so it became really difficult to like talk about it. And then there's this funny thing with elites, and it happened to, to us with the dog too, um, where you know various brokers and different people. It's like, how good can it be if I don't have access to it? Yeah, I know what the best stuff out there is. And if I, I know what the most is, I know what the best desirable stuff is. And so if I don't have access to it and my buddies don't have access to it and it's not one of these hype things, how good can it really be? Yeah. Right? And so you battle that kind of stuff. Like people would people would trip now, but like I mean there was a point in time where like you know, uh people didn't want to buy the chem dog. It wasn't frosty enough. Yeah, that's it true. Did. It didn't look good enough. I mean, if, if they were willing to sit down and smoke a joint, 100% it would go. But if they're just, but you know, lots and lots of people are just basing it off name, look, nose, price. Yeah. And you know, the longer things have gone on, the less and less people smoke and the, and the more it becomes just about like, I'm just middlemanning this to the next person, you know? So I just need a price point and a label. Yeah. Which is why, you know, and that's what started like other people like 
you know, breeding with all this different stuff. And that's where, you know, Blackberry Kush or this or that, or, you know, people changing names to like add a name that like, you know, would sell. Yeah. Right. I just need a name that'll sell. I got this cut. It doesn't sell. I need to add a name to it. So, someone needs to take it from me, you know? And, uh, yeah. And so the, you know, I don't, I mean, you know, and then, you know, if you want to talk about headband, um, is my cut the day wrecker? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, is my cut the original headband? Uh, I'm, I definitely know that it existed years before some of these other ones, you know? Um, I mean, you know, like the, the other headband, um, and the Lumpa, those are basically like, in my opinion, those are just straight Kush. Yeah. Those are OGs. Yeah. Those are just straight OGs. Like, I don't know if they're S ones or bag seed or whatever else, but I mean, they, they're very OG Kush dominant, whatever it is. Very OG Kush dominant. And they don't breed for anything else where, you know, um, you know, and so, you know, is headband sour OG? Is it just super skunk 91, you know, a, a, a Colombian super skunk leaning Fino, you know, sure. I mean, I, there's theories that I have, but not a bunch of proof. Yeah. You know, when it really comes down to it. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, I've posted pictures where I showed you where um, we had some, I had some friends of ours that went to the hills of Colombia and brought back some seed and we grew it out. And the Colombian looks the closest thing to the, to the LA headband that I've ever seen. Yeah. I remember seeing those pictures. Yeah. Side by sides where it's just, obviously it's not the exact same, but like the color, the structure, the look. Yeah. And obviously like, you know, there's Colombian and skunk, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what if it's just a 91 super skunk that leaned Colombian? Yeah. It's very, very possible but kept some of that, you know, that, that, you know, that 91 power. Yeah. And not that that means anything. Cause obviously it's just a trait, but it does variegate, you know, especially yes. if it gets hungry, you know, I mean, I can almost, I, I, you know, and so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that where it's like, sometimes you get a lot of information and you can really nail down like provenance and lineage and where it comes from. And, you know, and other, other strains just because of the nature of the beast and how it's all black market or came from prohibition era, you get as much info as you can. And then you hit a point where it's just like a wall. I did a uh, live feed and it's, I think it's up on YouTube if people want to look, but I actually tried to show what happens when you research the day or original diesel cut, like the best way I would just a, a framework for how I would go about starting to research a strain that I have no history on. And funnily enough, like we talk about, dude, the diesels are just convoluted. Things pop up out of nowhere. You know, all of a sudden this, this clone is injected into the scene with no, with no history. I mean, I have, I have some, I mean, you know, we, we've discussed it and I have some, I have some tidbits that aren't very well known that I think are part of the sour story. It's not the complete sour story, but it's certainly parts that don't get talked about too much, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, and then it's, and then there's also this thing too, that happens where it's like, you have people that are young and they're in their early twenties and they're making decisions and they end up doing stuff that becomes famous years later. And then 
you know, there's rep and, and this and that attached to all that kind of stuff. And how do you, you know, how do you delicately search for the truth without stepping on their toes about like, you know, certain aspects of their story or history where you're not even like trying to like out, out and call them like, Oh, you're a liar. You're this, you're that. But I mean, let's be honest. Like if you're doing stuff when you're 19, 20, 21, 24, whatever, and then 10 years later it becomes famous. Like you don't know what you were doing at the time was going to matter. Without a doubt. Yeah. How do you even, you know, maybe, maybe your memory isn't even that good. You know, maybe, you know, maybe you don't, I mean, what they've discovered, right. Is that one of the most unreliable things in court systems is eyewitnesses. Absolutely. Yeah. I've watched a lot on that. And they've proven it over and over again, where it's like eyewitnesses, you would think that, but people's memories are different, you know, and they can convince themselves that they remember things that aren't exactly the case. Yeah. Memories and perspectives, everything. Yeah. Or, you know, you might have an incident where like one of your best friends and you experience something and they barely remember it, but it sticks in your mind like really strong. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you can't believe that they don't remember certain details because you remember them really clearly and they have a vague memory, you know? And so all those... Bryn deals with that with me all the time where she looks at me like I'm an alien because I don't remember something. Yeah, and, and that kind of stuff really does play into it, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, obviously this is like a wide-ranging topic about things, but, I mean, I, I think... And I think I have some reasonably good proof that I think the basis of Sour Diesel is 91 by Super Skunk. I would agree. You know, and, um, you know, it's that, you know, there's certain things that I believe that are just like evidence based on like observation of knowing the strains and seeing them both bred together. Yeah. But then, you know, we have other tidbits, too, where it's like, I mean, I don't know if this is the, this this should be the time that we talk about this or not, but um you know, uh, after, after chem dog got, um, the super skunk in 93, um, he started growing it. Right. Uh, and it yeah. hermed and it hermed all over his stuff. Yeah. Right. And that's the interesting thing. You know, we, I mentioned this on the live, but I'll bring it up again. Um, just for the people that missed it, where the super skunk was unusual in that, you know, if you have an eight week strain or a nine week strain and you get tiger stripe seeds out of it when it's finished, it got pollinated in like week two or three. Yes. Right. Because it takes a good, anybody that breeds knows it takes a good four or five weeks from pollination, you know, or even longer at times. Yeah. Yeah. For big 12. Yeah. For really, for, I mean, I just mean after the initial pollination, right? Yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, it, it takes a good long time. So when you're finding viable seeds off, a, off a, a, a strain you cut at 62 days or something, it was probably pollinated in week three. Yep. Real early on. And so the super skunk would throw herms early and late, right? Uh, it was a real pain in the ass in that regard. And it was super live pollen. And <laughs> it really, it really was. I mean, it, it, if you stressed it at all or anything like that, it would just throw live bananas you yeah know? and um you know and i mentioned this too is i think that <clears throat> with linked traits i think the most ranked super skunks came with herms i think that some of that terp was linked to that hermaphrodism trait and that as people tried to breed away from it they bred away and more towards the sweet skunk or the 
onion garlic skunk and not like the rank rank skunk, right? Yeah. So anyway, so um, Chem Dog calls up my buddy in 1994, and he's super excited because he's grown up some of these seeds that accidentally got made um, by by him growing the 91 and the super skunk in the same room. And he is in love with them. So he calls up my buddy from Staten Island and uh, who's obviously in Sonoma at this point. And he's super excited in 1994 because <clears throat> the super skunk accidentally pollinated the chem dog. Um, and he's growing out some of these things and he thinks the hybrids are incredible. They're bigger. They're more vigorous. They reek all this stuff. Right. Yeah. And that was actually one of the, one of the like, you know, inspirations, um, not, you know, was, um, for even beginning the super dog was we want, obviously we, we wanted to combine the traits into a single thing, but you know, we already knew people that had accidentally done it. And this is obviously way long before S you know, reversals or anything like that, you know? Sure. Um, so that, that wasn't even in the cards, you know? Um, but, uh, he was, he was ecstatic. He was preferring to grow these to even the chem dog. Right. Yeah. They were, they were bigger. They were stinkier. They were more rank. They were, you know, they just, you know, and, and think about it too. Right. Like, so 1994 or whatever, I mean, you're talking chem dog is in his early twenties. Yeah. Right. Super young still, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, and so he, um, so he was telling my buddy, uh, that he was basically running rooms of these things. Right. Um, and that was what he was doing and because they yielded better and, you know, and all that. Right. And he was selling it as chem dog because that of was, his, that, that was his name. That was his gig. And that so was like, it was, yeah, it was like you weren't buying a strain, you were buying chem dog's weed. Correct. Right? That's kind of how they looked at it, you know? Well, so I've grown the 91 for a couple decades now and, you know, uh, you know, Skunk VA's grown it for a quarter century now, you know, and various things and it really doesn't harm. Yeah. It doesn't make seed. Right? Correct. Correct. So the part that people don't know is that so you take this conversation where he's expressing to my buddy how much he loves growing the hybrids and he's growing rooms full of these hybrids and he's having great success. And when we interviewed Vondo and those guys, right? Yeah. They said in 1994, when they were getting all that work from ChemDog, they found what, 15 or 18 seeds? You know? Something like that. Something, something along those lines as they were as they were getting the work from him, right? Yes. So a bunch of people were, um, you know, they've always, you know, everybody thought, okay, you know, like the story is that, you know, it came out of Chem, chem 91 seed. Yeah. You know, that was the basis of it, right? Sure. But without that conversation to my buddy, you wouldn't know that he was actually growing hybrids then. Uh, Correct. You know, and so... And then, you know, like when you, when you take what I consider to be any of the children of the super skunk, they all have herm tendencies. Yes, they do. It all passes that herm trait onto it, you know? And, 
And so, you know, in like, I don't even think I've found 15 or 18 seeds in chem dog in the 20 years I've grown it. I bet. Yeah. Minimal. You know, or like it just doesn't, you know, so for them to find that many in the space of like half a year. Right. And yeah. then you combine that with, then you combine that with, um, the fact that chem dog expressed how happy he was with the hybrids that he'd accidentally made. Right. He thought they were significantly better than the original, correct? Yeah. Or I mean, that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I can, I can totally see that in the sense that, you know, like the best super dogs that we did years later had the growth and the vigor and the stretch and the rank of the skunk, but it had the potency and the depth of power of the, of the 91. Yeah. Right? That's what you want. So, I mean, we, we, we had a slightly different path to that and that ours wasn't an accidental herm pollination. Right. Um, but I could totally see that happening. Right. <clears throat> and he's selling all that as chem dog because he's chem dog because that's his brand. That's his brand. Right. And, and so, you know, and so then these, so then Vondo and these guys, they collect whatever it was, you know, X amount, some amount of seeds in the teens, and they grow those up, you know, and, 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 you know, they get diesel, they get diesel one and two, right? Yep. Out of that diesel one herms, right? And we're not sure what else was in the room or exactly what happened, but out of that herm came the first sour plants. Correct. And it, I believe he said that they were seeds in a baggie labeled our diesel. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. if you look at, those Polaroids that in this last six or eight months that Skunk VA has been posting, right? Yeah. You can see the sour in the structure of that super skunk. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you can, it's just like as clear as a bell. You can see it, yeah. you know? Um, so do I know the whole sour diesel story, you know, um, by, you know, every step of the way? No, but, I think that those two bits of evidence that aren't super well known, like I think the fact that it started out as beans out of a 91 super skunk hybrid are pretty solid. Without a you doubt. Know? Now there, there's two things, right? So the beans that they were finding, they could have been, they could have been um, S ones of this 91 super skunk, right? Yeah. Or they could have even been the super skunk pollinating that hybrid itself again. It sure could have. Because he, you know, he was still growing the super skunk every rip, you know? Yeah. So, you know, you don't know. It's hard to say. But, you know, the original sour cuts, I can see the dog and I can see the super skunk in both. Like, I, oh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I grew the super skunk for 10 years before I lost it. We still have the chem dog. I can, in the, you know, in the, in the original sour cuts, I can see it. Oh, without a doubt. I would agree. It's in there, you know? And then that's another thing, right? Where it's like that super skunk's, you know, ability to herm on itself essentially created like an enormous line. Yeah. Create you know? a major part of the industry. Create that the sour diesel for a good 10 years was like, the most famous, the most desirable cut in America. Yep. The East Coast had an endless 
endless desire for it. It sure did. You know, it had the nose, it had the potency, it had the name, it had power, it had all those types of things, you know? And uh, so, you know, I mean, there's all this, these rumors about DNL and RKS and this and this and everything else. And we got to hear Vondo's version and all that. And just like anything else, there was a few other plants in the room at the time too, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so it's not like, it's not 100% figured out and it's unlikely just the way that it worked out with a bunch of young kids growing some rooms and partying at the same time that it ever would be. Um, but I think that, you know, that part of it isn't, is, is really not known at all, you know? Yeah, it is. And, and so a lot of people just assume that, oh, it had it, you know, the basis of it is this, you know? Yeah. And people don't realize that like, you know, chem dog called things chem dog. Cause that was his brand. Yeah. You know, I mean, he called the D later on chem dog. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Cause you're buying weed from chem dog. And, and, uh, and, for the time that actually that made sense a lot of people would have done that yeah i don't i don't think it was anything shady no you know it's like people didn't have this like intensive like lineage and this and that and everything else he was chem dog he grew chem dog you bought chem dog from chem dog you know <laughs> i mean you know whether that was the 91 or that whether that was a 91 super skunk hybrid or whether that was the chem d you know or whatever else you're buying chem dog correct and all those things he was growing were probably fire because the parent genetics were incredible. So it's not like anybody was unhappy. Yeah, I'm you sure. Know? I mean, those guys, Vondo and those guys, they saved all those beans and cracked those beans because those things were fire. And they right? knew they were special. And they like, knew they were special because they were getting fire. So like when they realized there was seeds in there, they kept hunting for more seed to save. Right. Just like yeah. traditional 90s, you know, you find beans and a good bag of weed and you put it in your little box. Yep. In your sock drawer or whatever, you know? And, you know, and so um, they, but then, you know, the most likely thing to me is that the diesel one or whatever hermed on itself. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, and then it's a, it's a mix of... You know, and then you're going to get all whatever's whatever the 91 actually is combined with super skunk, which is a skunk one by maple leaf indica. <clears throat> you're going to get a whole range at that point. Yeah. Of things. Yeah. You know, through those GZLS ones, I was able to see so much of super skunk, all of its different expressions. And I think it may have been one of the most valuable tools uh, and learning experiences in my breeding career was to go specifically through those GZLS ones. Yeah, you know, and, and it's like it, you know, people have tried to piece together the story and it becomes, all it takes is a little bit of misinformation or a little bit of misunderstood information. And then you try to like extrapolate a bunch of facts based on that, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, but you look at, you know, you look at some of the stories where it's like, oh, well, this stuff was Chem 91 by Northern Lights 1. Yeah. Right. But then it doesn't look anything like that. No. But then you look at the sour diesel and you look at those old pics that skunk VA is posted of the super skunk. And you're like, oh man, that looks like they look very close. Yeah. And, and, and that segues into the, the Massachusetts super skunk specifically what we've, what we've been learning lately in regards to possibly there be, there being two different cuts. 
Well, I mean, so, you know, one of the things that happened is that, I mean, this is just, this is just conjecture on, and in, on my, on my view, obviously, because I'm sure. not from the East coast and I wasn't tied into those crews super deeply. Sure. I mean, I, I will say that like most of the stuff that I believe I, I had talked to my buddy from Staten Island extensively about the entire history of all of it. I mean, we used to, used to sit around and, um, you know, uh, the, that original SS cut, I mean, if you opened up the 90, uh, seed bank catalog from Neville, you could take side branches of that SS and you could hold it right up to that. And it would be like an exact match. Yeah. I mean, it was just exact, right? Like, and he would show trimmers all the time. Like, look, that's super skunk. That's super skunk, (laughs) you know? And, you know, we've recently learned, you know, from, uh, you know, skunk VA's mentor or whatever, that um, it was basically, you know, the, the most likely thing is that it was a, a, a super skunk F2. Yep. Right. Is, is, the, is, the, is the most likely, you know, story that we know that seems to be the most based in, in, in fact or whatever. And yeah. And he labeled it six and that led to a bunch of confusion because some people called it six and some people called it super skunk. And those two groups didn't really overlap, you know? Yeah. And all that kind of thing. And so there's still some, some not entirely perfectly known, but that seems like it's most likely. So you're starting with, you know, something that, you know, obviously he kept it because it was the skunkiest of, of skunks, you know? And can you talk, can you talk about some of its growth traits? How did it grow? Uh, I mean, you can see, you know, it grew a bit like sour diesel, but not as dense. Um, it had that feathery look, um, it long grew. and lanky long lanky spears you know gotcha um it looked dense but it was really light if that makes sense you know like especially if you got it too dry you could just crisp it with your fingers you know um it would it would look full but there was a lot of like air to bud ratio in there you know silver pearls that way i think yeah and so you know it um you know it uh for most people it looked kind of like a less dense sour diesel yeah you know you could have a huge bud of it and it wouldn't, you'd put it on the, on the scale and it wouldn't weigh that impressive. Yeah. <clears throat> Cause it was, it was the opposite of like rock hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> even though, even though it might look firm, it wasn't dense. Yeah. You know, it was lime green. I mean, really, if people want to, like I said, um, you can look at that nineties super skunk in the seed bank catalog, that famous picture, and he would hold up side nuggets, crop after crop after crop to that yeah. picture. And it would be like a dead ringer, if you would. I yeah. mean, it just looked exact. And he would laugh about it, you know, because they're super skunk. There he is. There's your proof. Boom. You know, looks exactly like it does in the catalog. Reeks like a dead skunk. Yeah. You know, and like I said, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, you know, like by today's standards, its potency wasn't on par with the best stuff we have today. Yeah. It just, it just, it was moderate potency. And I think we've, we've both found that like when you find the terpiest things, they tend to be not the most potent. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that's because some of those terpenes haven't converted into, you know, THC or whatever else or entourage effect or whatever you want to call it. But um, sometimes really flavorful, flavorful things are either light or moderate in potency. Yeah. Which is, which is what led us to like the Superdog project was trying to combine the potency of the dog with the flavor of the super skunk, you know? Yeah. Um, and so 
getting back to what you were talking about, people call it the Massachusetts super skunk, even though it's from Virginia. And the only reason why it's called Massachusetts super skunk is because my buddy dropped it off with chem dog on his way back out to the West coast after getting the dog. And it's hard to say, you know, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, as is pretty famous by now, chem dog got wrapped up in that whole res the rat issue. Yep. And he got busted in 1996, I believe. Was um, it 2006 or 96? I thought it was, I'm not sure. I thought it was earlier. Um, it might, it might've been earlier. I just remember the, the, the high times, the first one he did, I want to say it was 2006. But I, I can't I, my, my point, my point to all that is that I think he, he definitely got, I think if you look back on the old forums, he definitely got himself into a bit of trouble in 96. Yeah. And I think most of the super skunks that got passed out after that, um, like doesn't look like those pictures that's that skunk VA posts. No, not at all. Not at all. It, it looks much shorter. It looks much more Afghani. It looks much denser, right? Yeah. Um, it's short and squat. Short and squat instead of being long and, and, and running, you know, light spears, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's amazing that he has those pictures from 1995 because those are absolute evidence that's guaranteed the cut. Yeah. That's Knowing, it. Being able to find those solved or being able to see those pictures, it, it answered a lot of questions that we had had. Yeah. You know, and so it's, well, then it's like, I mean, he grew it for quite some time and I grew it for quite some time. And so did other friends of ours and stuff, but it's like, there's no way you can convince people based on your memory, you know? So having actual evidence like that from that era, you know, I think it's quite possible that, you know, there was a mix up on the East Coast and what got really passed around at length about as MSS wasn't. Correct. And and what was used in Jeezel was whatever the second cut that was going around as MSS was. You know, now it's also entirely possible that it, you know, it could be, you know, that could be an S1 found in the actual buds of super skunk. You know, oh, it definitely could um, because it hermed, you know, and so, you know, maybe he had, you know, some seed in it. Like I said, in your 90s box of good seed, maybe he had some seed that he found in the chem dog from super skunk seeds. And that's where some of those hybrids and other things came from. And then maybe he had some seeds he found in super skunk. And that's where that came from, you know, and yeah. that's why your Jesel experiments look so close to so many different kinds of super skunk expression. Yeah, there's definitely super skunk in it, but because it wasn't like it wasn't that. the same one. And then, you know, various various MSSs have popped up in recent years as the skunk terp um yeah. has been, you know, has been sort of like the unicorn or the holy grail and everyone wants to have it and claim that they've got it. Um, <clears throat> you know, but until somebody like me or, you know, uh skunk VA or others like Everybody claims seeds of it, but nobody brings jars to events where or passes it out where you can be like, oh, this is it. Exactly. You know? um, people want to breed with it. People want to get it and be like, oh, this is legit. Da, 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 da. But then it doesn't look like the one of old. It doesn't smell like the one of old. You know, we, we both know that Skunk VA has gotten a number of, of cuts or samples of things that people are pretty sure is it from the East Coast. And he doesn't think they're even close. 
Yeah. You know? Um, so, you know, as far as we know, it's dead. Yeah. For all you intents know? and purposes, currently, that is the status of MSS. Or if it's not dead, it's with people that, you know, someone could still have it somewhere, but it's not tied into, um, you know, the community where it hasn't actually popped up. Exactly. You know, and, you know, that can happen. Sometimes things can be lost and one or two people ends up having it and they don't even realize that it's because they're not tied into the forums or the Instagram or the larger community. And they don't even realize they're sitting on something rare and amazing. Yep. You know, so it could be that, you know, it's a little more suspicious now because so many people want to find it and then want to sell beans of it and have it and have that terp again, you know? Yeah. Um, but so far it's been a lot of, uh, a lot of dead ends. Yeah. It's been a lot of, um, MSS names, but the Terps just don't match up. No, they don't match up and the look doesn't match up and it's not, it's just, uh, you know, they just, they, it just doesn't match up. So, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, I know for a fact that some of her children exist. Yes. And her children have been bred into all kinds of things, you know? Yeah. And all that. And so, you know, it, it, it is like we were talking about with breeding way earlier, the progeny exist and are being used in all kinds of ways. Um, but whether or not the mother cut exists is a whole nother factor. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, until, until Skunkie put up those posts with the, uh, with the Polaroids, the only thing I had to go off of as far as mass super skunk. And I think most people, um, was that very first chem dog article in high times where he shows one picture of something labeled mass skunk and whatever is coming out of Jesel is the spitting image of that plant. And, and unfortunately, I, of course, uh, because I'm so so integral, integrally tied into the Jesel cut, um, I wanted it to be the original. But unfortunately, that's not how shit works sometimes. And you just got to go with the facts. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it doesn't mean that it's not an excellent cut in its own right. For sure. Know? And all that. And it's like, you know, I mean, you know, on on the varying expression, I mean, obviously, like if if the original super skunk cut that we've been describing is an F2 of super skunk in itself, um, then who knows what was exactly in those genes. I mean, we know that super skunk originally was a, was a, an, an, an 80s skunk cross to a maple leaf indica that was known as Afghan tea, you know? And so you could get some more indica variations. You could get some more skunk variations. You could get some Colombian or some Mexican or some, you know, yeah. um, and all that. And it seems like the Jesel leans a little bit more towards the Afghan side of things. Oh, for sure. Um, and then it seems like those pictures that Chemdog had in the high times leaned more towards the Afghan side. Of it things. sure did. You know, and, you know, I mean, Chemdog and stuff like that, you know, like, you know, I don't want anybody listening to any of this to like, you know, jump down his throat and anything like that, because in all honesty, like, between the 91 and the chem D and all that, like several of my all time favorite cuts came out of his little rooms. Yeah, absolutely. And he was 17 or 18 years old when he popped the 91 and he was in his early twenties making a bunch of these other decisions when these other things were happening. 
And he just was had his little thing going on and had no idea that everyone was going to be pouring over like every action and every utterance and every everything later on to try to find out like the exact history, you know, and you know yeah. what it's like, you know what it's like to be a, a young partier in your twenties, you know? Fuck yeah, I do. <laughs> and, and just, and just doing things. And you don't, you don't, you don't realize that they're going to, for most people, what they're doing right then isn't going to have any future importance that anyone's going to care about. Yeah, exactly. And for him, it's like that era of his life has gotten put under a microscope, you know, and various things that he said in 2006 or 2010 or 2015, all get, you know, whatever the case may be. It's like people expect him to have some kind of encyclopedic knowledge of everything that happened, you know, when yeah, you don't I even can't realize even, I can't even remember my early 20s. Yeah. You know, and I mean, in all honesty, too, it's like when you think about like, you know, uh, Joe B and Peabuds sold weed on dead tour. Right. Yes. They sold him some weed. Yep. They weren't growing weed. They were buying and selling weed as middleman. Yes. You know, 15 years later, they realized that something came out of this bag of weed that they sold. <laughs> yep. Like for real, you know? And so, you know, they played a critical role in making it all happen. Right. Yeah. Without um, a doubt. Without a doubt. And like, they might even be some of the few people that actually smoked the herb that the 91 came out of the dog, right? Bud, yeah. The dog bud or, you know, or, or whatever it ended up being, you know, but, like they got that from someone else and you know, it's like you, let's say you bought a couple pounds and sold them in a weekend and then moved on to some other pounds and you did that constantly. Like how much info would they even really have? Yeah. You know, and it's not like they knew the 17 year old kid that they sold weed to that took it home and grew some, they weren't like tight personal friends where they were part of the story after that until way later. Yeah. That was much, much later when they came back I mean, and realized all that. It was basically like, oh, six. Yeah. Before they realized. So now you're asking to them to remember like some weed that they had for a few days, 15 years before. And everybody, <laughs> and everybody wants to know like immense details about it when like, it seems like according to Peabody, like him and Joe B were on dead tour doing that from the mid to late eighties on constantly. Yeah. And you're asking them to remember like one weekend, one stop. Yeah, that would be when, fucking impossible for me. When that's all they were doing. And they didn't realize that any of that was going to have any special importance until forever. Yeah. You know? Um, but then, you know, later on, like everybody expects, you know, these kind of people to be experts on everything chem because they were there in the very beginning. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, some of them didn't have any um, interaction with chem dog that didn't smoke it again for many, many, many years after that bag was sold. Yeah, really until the reunion era when they found each other on the forums again. Exactly. Which was, I think, 06-ish. Yep. Something along those lines. I think that's, you know, that might be the year that, that Joe B and Peabody actually first saw 91 in person. Yeah, I think it was. And got to smoke some of it, you know? Yep. Um, you know, I think they, they saw it. And, I mean, they, when, they all got, when, they all, when they all found each other again, you know, chem dog gave, I think chem dog gave Joe B four seeds that he said were part of the original thing he found. Yeah. And that's where the one and four came. The one through the four came from the NL five Hayes cross. 
Well, yeah, whatever, whatever the, you know, whatever the, the, yeah. the one, two, three, four, that's where those came from. Right. Yeah. And then they went over with the one, two, three, four, and they traded that to, um, our friend, uh, IC collective for the D yeah. that skunk, that skunk VA had flown out to the East coast and gotten and brought back, um, you know, because chem dog had lost the dog and wanted it back. And they, you know, and so, you know, he flew out east and gave it to him and brought back the D. That's how I got the D. Um, it was in 06 when they first brought it back. And, you know, they were flipping out over the 91. Dude, you got they, dinky D. Because they hadn't, they hadn't, they hadn't seen the 91. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, until then. You know, because it was really only in our little crew that, that saved it. Everyone else had lost every, you know, had to been lost back East a long time before. And it was really only four or five of us that kept it safe between that mid nineties and, and, uh, mid two thousands era. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean it, and then there, you know, and I mean the, the whole D thing probably could be for another 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 episode or time yeah. or something like that because it's going to be for a full episode <laughs> that 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 has that has a that has a long long thing to it and various aspects of it how long have we been talking dude what do you think hour and a half i think uh cry baby will you type it Where's- out Two hours and 30 minutes. That's perfect, dude. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, dude. I really appreciate taking the time to do it. You can cut the recording, Crybaby. I think we're good. Yeah, we're good. 